Greetings, and welcome to Stars and Stuff, the astronomy podcast brought to you by me, Richard J. Bartlett. In this episode, we'll get an update on what's happening with Betelgeuse, and staying in that constellation, we'll talk about the three stars of Orion's belt. You'll also get an invitation to join me on my Facebook group, and I'll cover the news and planets as usual. Like a lot of astronomers, I've been taking a look at Betelgeuse recently, and I've seen a noticeable drop in brightness. It usually rivals Rigel, but now it's clearly fainter and shows no sign of recovering. According to the astronomer's telegram, number 13410, dated January 20th, it's now magnitude 1.5, making it close in brightness to Bellatrix, the star that marks the other shoulder of Orion. It's thought the star's radius has increased by about 9%, with the current fainting caused by gas and dust being expelled and obscuring the star. Keep your eyes on it, as no one knows what might happen next. Something else I wanted to mention is the new Stars and Stuff Facebook group. Long story short, it's primarily focused on astronomy, but I also wanted to create a place where people could talk about space, science fiction, and just nerdy stuff in general. Yes, even Harry Potter if you really wanted to. We're a small but friendly group from a wide variety of backgrounds and with a wide variety of interests, but we're active and we'd love for you to join us. So if you're interested, you can either search for Stars and Stuff on Facebook or go directly to tinyurl.com forward slash SNS Facebook group and hopefully we'll see you there. Astronomers have discovered four more bizarre objects at the center of our galaxy not far from the supermassive black hole called Sagittarius A that are now forming a class of their own. These objects look like gas but behave like stars with orbits that range from about 100 to 1000 years. The new class of objects, called G objects, look compact most of the time but stretch out when their orbits bring them closest to the black hole. The four new objects have been labeled G3, G4, G5 and G6. This set is in addition to the first pair of G objects found near the galactic center. G1 was discovered in 2005, followed by G2, which was discovered by astronomers in Germany in 2012. The fact that there are now several of these objects observed near the black hole means that they are, most likely, part of a common population, and while G1 and G2 have similar orbits, G3, G4, G5 and G6 all have very different orbits. It's believed that G2 is most likely two stars that have been orbiting the black hole in tandem and have now merged into an extremely large star cloaked in unusually thick gas and dust. A team of astronomers has discovered a new way to map distant galaxies. They use an atomic oxygen spectral line for this. Normally, this spectral line cannot be captured with terrestrial telescopes, but because the light comes from distant galaxies, it is stretched and can be actually measured on Earth. Recently, an instrument developed in the Netherlands made this measurement possible. A new study has found that stars need to be in binary systems to create gamma ray bursts. Gamma ray bursts are the universe's brightest explosions, caused by massive collapsing stars. The tidal effects from a companion star keep the collapsing star spinning and producing a jet of material. Thousands of binary star systems were modeled for the study. Phosphorus, present in our DNA and cell membranes, is an essential element for life as we know it. But how it arrived on the early Earth is something of a mystery. Astronomers have now traced the journey of phosphorus from star-forming regions to comets. Their research shows, for the first time, where molecules containing phosphorus form, how this element is carried in comets, and how a particular molecule may have played a crucial role in starting life on our planet. 
An international research team has gained important insights into the origin of the material in the spiral arms of the Milky Way, from which new stars are ultimately formed. By analysing properties of the galactic magnetic field, they are able to show that the so-called warm ionised medium, or WIM, in which the Milky Way is embedded, condenses near a spiral arm. While gradually cooling, it serves as a supply of colder material of gas and dust that feeds star formation. A cold Neptune and two potentially habitable worlds are part of a cache of five newly discovered exoplanets and eight exoplanet candidates found orbiting nearby red dwarf stars. The two potentially habitable planets are orbiting GJ180 and GJ229A, which are among the nearest stars to our own Sun, making them prime targets for observations by the next generation space and land based telescopes. They are both super Earths with at least 7.5 and 7.9 times our planet's mass and orbital periods of 106 and 122 days, respectively. The Neptune mass planet, found orbiting GJ433 at a distance of, at which surface water is likely to be frozen, is probably the first of its kind that is a realistic candidate for future direct imaging. Volcanic activity did not play a direct role in the mass extension event that killed the dinosaurs and about 75% of the Earth's species 65 million years ago. Two planetary-scale disturbances occurred within less than a million years of one another, leading scientists to question the role each played in driving the mass extension event. An asteroid more than 10 kilometers in diameter collided with the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico and around the same time about half a million cubic kilometers of lava flooded across much of India and into the deep sea. Analysis of marine fossils and climate models shows that the major release of volcanic gases, thought by some to contribute to the extinction, happened about 200,000 years before the asteroid impact, making the asteroid the sole driver of the extension event. It's still relatively quiet in the evening sky for the last 10 days of the month, with Venus being the only bright planet visible to the naked eye. It continues to distance itself from the Sun and is currently shining at an impressive magnitude minus 4.1. It sets about 3 hours after the Sun, giving you plenty of time to admire it. Around the same date, and for the last few days of the month, you might also be able to spot Mercury very low over the southwestern horizon as it edges away from the sun in the sky and into the evening twilight. The thin waxing crescent moon will appear close by on the 26th before visiting Venus the following night. If you have binoculars or a telescope, you have the opportunity on the 27th to spot Venus, our nearest planetary neighbour, close to Neptune, our most distant planetary neighbour. On that date, Venus will only be a tenth of a degree from Neptune, making them both visible within the same binocular field of view. That being said, you might need a telescope to spot Neptune, as the planet may be a little too low and faint to be easily seen with binoculars. If you want to try your luck, Neptune will appear as a dim, sapphire blue star to the southwest of Venus. Uranus is still visible for about 7 hours after sunset, and won't sink below the horizon until just after midnight. Mars then rises at about 3.30am, and while Saturn is still lost within the glare of the Sun, you might still be able to see Jupiter creeping over the southeastern horizon at about 45 minutes or half an hour before sunrise. Lastly, you might be able to catch the slim crescent moon in the pre-dawn sky before it turns new on the 24th. After that, it will return to the evening twilight before reaching first quarter on the 2nd of next month. The constellation of Orion, Hunter, is a familiar sight to many during the winter months. It strides across the sky like a giant, which is exactly what it is. 
mythologically speaking of course. The Greeks identified him as such. A gigantic, supernaturally strong hunter is what Wikipedia says, so it must be true. But after whetting your appetite with this information, I'm going to slightly turn left of Orion and talk about something else instead, his belt. In fact, the three stars of Orion's belt are almost as famous as the constellation itself, but while some non-astronomers might have heard of it, thanks perhaps to movies like Men in Black, I doubt many of them would actually know it's a thing. More specifically, we're talking about three things, three stars, all quite bright, forming an almost straight diagonal line across the constellation's midsection. Also known as the Three Kings, or Three Sisters, these three stars point southwards to Sirius, the brightest star in the sky, and northwards to Aldebaran, the red eye of Taurus the Bull. Keep drawing the line diagonally upward, and you'll then come to the Pleiades, one of the prettiest and most easily seen star clusters in the, in the entire night sky. From east to west, the three stars of Orion's belt are called Alnitak, Alnilam, and Mintaka, and their names, like many of the names of the stars, are Arabic. For example, Alnitak, the name of the easternmost star, roughly translates as the girdle. Not very romantic or exciting, but at least it's better than being named after the giant's underwear, whatever the Arabic for that might be. Alnitak is a blue supergiant star, large enough to hold over 30,000 suns within it, and is roughly 250,000 times more luminous than the sun. As such, it's the brightest example of a blue supergiant in the sky. It's not alone either. There are two companion stars with a third suspected. The main star, also known as the primary, is itself a close binary, with another magnitude 4 companion about two arc seconds away. This puts it within range of amateur telescopes, but you'll probably need a medium-sized scope and a magnification of over 100 times to see it. Alnilam, the central star in the belt, is the brightest of the three and shines at magnitude 1.7, just a little brighter than Alnitak. This makes the star the 29th brightest in the sky. Its name could either mean string of pearls or sapphire, depending upon what you read and where you read it. It's a little larger and is more massive than Alnitak, and appears as a brilliant white star through binoculars or a telescope. Lastly, there's Mintaka, the westernmost star, and its name literally means the belt. It's a little hard to understand why one star should have that name since it takes at least two or three stars to form a belt, but there you go. Who are we to reason why? It's the faintest of the three and is slightly out of alignment with the other two. This has given rise to the Orion correlation theory in Egyptology, which claims that the three large pyramids of Giza are modelled upon the three stars of Orion's belt. The theory further goes on to say that the Egyptians were attempting to recreate the celestial constellation on the Earth. Why? Well, to the Egyptians, Orion was known as Osiris, the god of life, death and resurrection. The rising of Orion in the pre-dawn sky was linked to the flooding of the Nile, a vital event for the Egyptians, as without it their crops would surely fail. Orion was a pretty big deal at the time, and you can understand how the Egyptians had a soft spot for it. But is there any truth to the theory? Probably not. Using planetarium software and taking into account precession, a subject too complicated to get into now, astronomers have since shown that the stars were aligned differently at around the time the pyramids were built. All the same, it's a nice notion, but not one I hope to see in Indiana Jones 5. Partly because it's largely been disproven, but mostly because I don't think Indiana Jones 5 should get made in the first place. So we had the three stars of Orion's belt. Well, what else is there to see? Well, look just below an attack and you'll see a couple of stars that represent the sword of Orion. Look more closely and you'll notice that one of those stars is slightly fuzzy. 
This is in fact the Orion Nebula, a vast cloud of gas and dust in space that's the birthplace of the stars themselves. Look at it with binoculars and you should clearly be able to see the cloud, even from suburban skies, and the view through a telescope is fantastic. Even through a small telescope at low power, the nebula is a breathtaking sight. There's another nebula here, but one that's not so easily seen. The Horsehead Nebula shows up in photographs immediately to the lower route of Allen attack. It's possible that you might be able to glimpse it with a large telescope under clear dark skies and with the help of a nebula filter, but otherwise you will need to learn the fine art of astrophotography to see it. This is one nebula that clearly and immediately resembles its namesake. There's no mistaking it for anything else. It's a favourite with astronomers, whether they've actually seen it or photographed it or not, and also with fans of Douglas Adams, as any self-respecting galactic hitchhiker will tell you, this is the home of the legendary planet Magrophia. It was here, on that planet's cold surface, that the ape descended life form known as Arthur Dent watched in awe as he experienced his first sunset on another world. His wonder and excitement was only subdued by his only companion at the time, Marvin, the manically depressed and paranoid android. But that sunset, exclaimed Arthur, I've never seen anything like it in my wildest dreams. The two suns. It was like mountains of fire boiling into space. I've seen it, said Marvin. It's rubbish. Oh Marvin, if only I could see what you've seen with your eyes, or photoreceptors, or whatever it is you have. Here's this episode's trivia question. You can get over 700 like it from my book, The Daily Astronomical and Space Quiz Book, which is available on Amazon in both paperback and Kindle format. So here it is. Roughly how far from the Earth is the Orion Nebula? Is it A. 1000 light years, B. 1300 light years, or C. 1600 light years, or D. 1900 light years? As always, I'll give you the answer in a few moments. So the answer to the trivia question is B, 1,300 light years. This means it's taken light from the nebula 1,300 years to reach us, so you're seeing it as it was around the year 720 AD. That's it for another episode. As always, if you liked it, subscribe and tell your friends. You can find Stars and Stuff on the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, Apple and Google, among others or by going to tinyurl.com forward slash snspod. Again, if you're interested in my books, you can find them at tinyurl.com forward slash rjbamazon-us in the United States and tinyurl.com forward slash rjbamazon-uk in the United Kingdom. You're also welcome to email me at astronomywriter at gmail.com with any comments or questions you might have and don't forget to join us at Stars and Stuff on Facebook at tinyurl.com forward slash SNS Facebook group. Thanks for listening, and until we talk again, clear skies to you. <laughs>